0: Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 and then 7 through 9. We'll be reading from the New King James Version. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And then verse 7. And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife. Because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw. And there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her.
1: I do not know a place that I enjoy worshipping God more than in this room with you the atmosphere is conducive to our thought processes and offering God the very best that we have. And as meager as that is, aren't we thankful to be able to offer it? And I'm so glad to see you here. Before we get into the lesson, I want to thank Paul for announcing about Christmas at the Collies next Friday, this coming Friday from five to eight. But I want to tell you now, we want everybody to come. And um, so if you can't, spend the whole time. Well, that's all right. You can come and go. You don't have to bring anything except yourself. If you want to bring uh, your grandmother with you, bring her. We'll be proud to have her too and we always have a great time. We've been doing this a long, long time and it's just always wonderful and I hope you'll you'll come. This sermon is in response to something that was said recently to me and um, that was good. Preachers need help too, you know. I mean, not not often, of course, but so <laughs> we need help too. Anyway, he made this observation about preaching and, and about sexuality, and he said, you know, in in our preaching generally from our pulpits, that it it's most commonly the case that if the subject of sexuality is discussed, that it's about sin, that it's about The wrong things that people do and how we must avoid them. And we avoid, it seems, often talking about this in the good way, in reference to marriage and the intimacy of marriage. And that's a mistake. And I I heard that and I thought, uh, you know, he's right about that. He's right. And so this sermon today is going to be unique, I think, in that This is a sermon about the intimacy of marriage. What I want to do from the beginning is tell you that I'm going to give you my best attempt at making this a very discreet sermon. I'm I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything. I don't think I will. We're going to talk about the subject, but I don't think I will. So I don't want you to feel nervous about that. Nine things. So what I did, I got my Bible down and I started reading Old and New Testament of passages that related to this subject about intimacy and marriage and the happy passages, the passages which God gives to us to encourage us and to instruct us in reference to this subject. So got nine things, and it won't be hard to keep notes. I'm going to put them up on the board as we go through, and I'm going to read a lot of passages of Scripture that are about this subject. So follow along, and let's work through this together. Number one, the Bible teaches from the get-go that it's, it's existential, Existential, of course, means pertaining to our existence. Now, this one's pretty easy. But when you get to Genesis, I mean, we, know, we understand this. And those people in this room who are of any appreciable age, we, we understand the connection between procreation and the intimacy of marriage. We really understand that. Well, I want to show it to you from the Bible. So you start in Genesis chapter 1 and 27. And the Bible says that God made them male and female. And then the next verse says... God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we're going to talk about Matthew 19 in a few minutes because Jesus is going to reach back to creation and say, let me tell you something, this male and female business was for a purpose and this is what the purpose is. Not just procreation, but to bring husbands and wives closer together. So he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And then when you get to the bottom of this little discussion in Genesis 1, it says in verse
0: 28,
1: we'll come back to that in a moment. The command was for Adam and Eve to be involved sexually. And so what's interesting to me is while we understand this connection, but again, between the intimacy of marriage and procreation, we got that. It's interesting that God often repeats it, that God re- is almost redundant about it to say, not just to say, this man and his wife had a child, but it is very typically the case that he will say uh, he knew his wife. He emphasizes the intimacy in connection to the the, con- the conception. So here's Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man of the Lord. Now, that's chapter 4 and verse 1. Here's chapter 4 and verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Here's verse 25, same chapter. And Adam knew his wife again. It wasn't enough that he said it in the first time. God, God wants to, to, to underscore the fact that I made male and female for this purpose and that it's existential. I made it for husbands and wives. And and that's what happened. They came together in this act of marriage. And as a result, she conceived and bore a son. One of my favorites is First Samuel chapter 1, to, to show this again. And so you remember about Hannah and Elkanah. Elkanah was her husband and polygamous. And so Penina was his other wife. And, and Penina was able to bear children. Hannah was not. And so she goes to the tabernacle and she's with Eli. And he sees her and she's praying. And you remember how that is because he thinks... Because she's praying silently and she's moving her lips and not audible, he thinks that she's inebriated, and, and he rebukes her. No, no, no. She says, "I'm I'm not I'm not drunk. I'm praying." Oh, and then he felt pretty bad about what he had done. And she explained to him that I I, I want a child. I want a boy. And and he said, "You go your way." And, and I will pray for you that this will happen. This this will occur. But that's the next verse. I'm in first, that's first Samuel chapter one and verse 17. First Samuel one, verse 19, two verses later. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, And the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Samuel because I've asked him from the Lord. They left the tabernacle with the promise that God was going to fulfill this request of Hannah and and from Eli. And and they go home and the Bible says that her husband knew her, that Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. So number one is it's existential and God wants us to understand that, that he created this This thing called the human race could have made human race asexual, right? That's how he could have done it, but he didn't. He made male and female, and then he reiterates over and over in these early days the the role that the intimacy between husband and wife plays in those conceptions. It is existential. It is pertaining to the existence of the race. God created in such a way that if people didn't engage in this activity— as husbands and wives, the race, the human race, would cease to exist. It's existential. All right, here's number two. It's reserved for a man and a woman who wear each other's wedding rings. So this is, this is what I was referencing a while ago. We go to Matthew chapter 19, and Jesus looks back to creation, points back at that, and he says this, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this cause... Now, see, this is really interesting. In my Bible, I've underlined, for this cause. He made them male and female, and for this cause, as male and female, because they were created that way, he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Ladies and gentlemen... That that is broader than just the subject that we're talking about, but it's about the subject we're talking about. That they would be one flesh. And then he says, What God has joined together, let not a man, King James says, put asunder. New King James says, separate. In other words, it, it goes it, it, by the way, parenthetically, the word for man there, let not man separate, that let not man put asunder, is not the, the word for a male. Aner, that's the Greek word for male. It's the Greek word anthropos. And the meaning is the whole human race. So he says, I created them male and female so that so that as they come of age, they're going to want to leave father and mother and and they're going to want to marry. I made them for that purpose. So I put this drive in them so they'd want to be together and marry and bear children. And then he said, I want the human race then to leave them alone. Don't you be messing with this. Let not man put this asunder, let not man separate this. Sacred, existential, and designed for a man and woman who wear one another's wedding rings. Now here's, here's uh, Proverbs 5 and verse 15. Drink waters, I'm sorry, drink water from your own cistern. This is very poetic, but it's about this subject. And running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. All right. So number two is of nine things I I I put down for a happy, holy, wholesome relationship between a husband and wife. It's reserved for a husband and wife who wear wears one another's wedding rings. Here's, here's number three. It's portrayed in Scripture as happy. It's happy. Now, here's, here's one of my favorite passages, and, and it's one that you might just overlook, but it's pretty impressive. It's Genesis chapter 26, and you remember, as we heard read one ago, that Isaac, because of a famine, goes amongst the Philistines because there's food there and because he can... He can have his flocks and so forth. And, but he goes to the king first, Abimelech, in Gerar, among the Philistines, and he says, you know, we'd like to come. We're not one of you, but can we come and could we start up a life here, my wife Rebecca and I? And, and, and Abimelech said, sure, that'll be fine. And so they did. But Isaac didn't introduce Rebekah as his wife. He introduced her as his sister because he felt like that, that she was so pretty I guess this is a compliment, but it didn't work out so well. She's so beautiful that that the Philistines will, will kill me if they think I'm her husband. Get me out of the way so they can have her. Somebody else will want her. And so his fix for this, his remedy was to tell everybody that she was his sister. Now, he was wrong about that. He, he was wrong about how he judged the Philistines, but be that as it may, a good bit of time passes. And Abimelech is leaving Rebecca alone. She's his sister, whatever. And everybody leaves her alone. She's his sister. Until one day, Abimelech accidentally looks out a window at an opportune time, at a time when Isaac and Rebecca are together. Now, we're very discreet about these kinds of matters. We should be. The Bible teaches discretion. And we'll talk about that somewhere in a few minutes. And yet, we know that there's sometimes when accidents occur, sometimes a door is opened at an inopportune time. We know that that happens. And everybody's embarrassed and nervous about that. And so that we go on go on with life. We know that unintentional, accidental. That's what happened here. It was just an accident. But he looks out a window at just such a moment. And now it's when it gets interesting because of the translation of the Bible. So you have... And I read several. I read every translation I could lay my hands on for this word. The King James says, and it's interesting because the translators were nervous to say what was going on. They were nervous about this. And, And so the King James says that Abimelech saw them sporting together. And he said, he went to Isaac and he said, you told me she was your sister. I saw what was going on, she's your wife, because they were sporting together. The Hebrew word can be translated laughing. And so the ESV does that, the ESV, this, which is just as silly as it can be in my mind, I, I think this is laughable because, you know, it's like, you've been telling me she's your sister, well I saw you laughing together, she's not your sister, she's your wife. Well that's silly, that's, that's silly. The New King James says, showing endearment. The ASV says, caressing her. And the Young's translation, which we don't know a lot about, but they translate it, playing with Rebecca. And that's what happened. The point of this one is that 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 word means happy. It means, it does mean all of these things, and all of these are good translations. The best one would be the ASV, of course, because that's what was going on. The point is that in Scripture... This activity we're talking about today is portrayed as being happy. The intimacy between a husband and wife. Number four, God's Old Testament law made a provision for it or accommodation, arrangement for it. And I'm going to Deuteronomy now. Can you put up the next slide? Number four. That's okay. I'll proceed. Deuteronomy 24 and verse five. Listen to this. This is in the law. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, the word happiness means, well, it can be translated that way. That's a fine thing. But, but in this context, of course, it means more. It's the same Greek word as is found in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 18, where it's talking about Intimacy of marriage, and it says, "Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth." The word "rejoice" there is this same Hebrew word. It means it means a long honeymoon is what it means. It means don't let him be charged any business; he doesn't have to go to war for a, a whole year. And we we practice this in our culture, not for a year, mind you. And some couples financially are not able to take time away from work after they right after the the, the wedding, and they can't. Maybe maybe they take a honeymoon later, but. We in our generations, in our culture, appreciate the importance of this. What happens is that God knew, He knew that marriage was so important for His people that He wanted to solidify that relationship. And the way that He does it is we're not going to send you to war, we're not going to charge you with any business. Y'all just be together for a year, get to know one another very, very well. He wanted them to bond. Now, That leads leads us to the next one. Here's number five. Can we do it? There we are. Teaching number five from Scripture about sex in marriage. If removed from marriage by choice or by inattention, a serious risk emerges. Now, we started out talking about how this is existential. It pertains to our, uh, naturally, our existence But it also pertains to the sanctity of marriage and the value and the weight, the sanctification of marriage. So here's 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, and we don't have that letter, I don't know what that letter said, but they were asking about this subject. I'm going to answer what you asked. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Stop. No, that's not a general principle. It was applicable only to that time. As Paul would put it in the King James translation, uh, because of this present distress, great persecution going on against Christians right then, and so he cautioned them that if you if you 're single don 't worry about marriage right now we 've got too much going on, so in that context it 's good not to touch a woman. He says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let a man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband, let the husband render to the wife the affection. Do her," the old King James said, "Do benevolence. Likewise also the wife to her husband. And then he binds this in a way that is rather really breathtaking. This is so very strong on the subject. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again. Ladies and gentlemen, that's about the intimacy of marriage. And then you come together again so that Satan does not tempt you for your lack of self-control. That is to say that when through choice or inattention, uh, this is omitted from a marriage or, or however you want to phrase it. The fact of the matter is that a risk, he says, will emerge. In recent times, I mean in the last few months, I've been counseling with a couple of couples in in different states, different from ours, different from one another. In both cases, adultery was involved. In both cases, it was the husband who committed the adultery. In one case, the, the husband was very penitent, and the wife then, and he worked that out, and, and as a result, that marriage is, is going to sustain. It's going to continue. Reconciliation occurred, and, and they're doing very well, very well. And the other one, listen closely because this is the point of this illustration. The husband had not only committed adultery, but had gotten so attached to his life away from her and with others that he had no interest in returning to that marriage. Surely when Paul wrote this, he had that sort of thing in mind. And he's saying, don't you be apart from your spouse for long periods of time. Because if you do that, temptation will emerge. A serious risk will come out of this. And and so the point is that that not only is the Lord in favor of the intimacy of marriage, in this passage, he commands it, and he commands it in some very strong terms. Now, there are some things which would prevent that, understandably, some health issues perhaps, and of course, old age, and some various different things. But but we understand that. We don't have to say say that. Setting that aside, the point that's made here is that that if you remove it from marriage by choice or inattention, immediate risk emergence, emerges. Here's number six. It is without shame. Now, I think, I think it's very important just for me to make this disclaimer here. When you say it's without shame, the, the disclaimer is that it's not without discretion. Now, you go to Titus chapter 2 and older women are to teach the younger women, and one of those things is discretion. And that means that that we're not going to be people, you know, Hollywood, you have these women and they say, I'm going to appear this way in these movies because I'm not ashamed of my body. Well, excuse me, but there's more at stake here than just that. Shame is not what he describes in the scripture about marital relationship and love. Discretion is, though, and so this is a very private thing. It's between husbands and wives, and that that makes the whole thing even more special to be discreet. But anyway, let's talk about this shame thing. It It is without shame. Here's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be joined to his wife. The two shall be one flesh. And then it says they were both naked. This is verse 24. 25, rather. Genesis 2, 25. They were both naked, the man and his wife. And then he adds this clause. And were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. I understand that there's a lot packed into that. It, 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 it of course, includes the fact that you have... You don't have sin yet. hasn't been introduced into the world. And so you have a purity. And, and it's very common for commentators to talk about this and say, there's a child likeness involved in Adam and Eve at this point. I think all of that is true. I just don't think it's all that's left. Uh, that's that's all, all that's here. What he wanted us to, to, to see is that this isn't shameful. They're husband and wife, and they're, they're very happy. This is delightful. This is something that's that God created, and he did it for this purpose. He did it on purpose, that he created the drive, and he put it inside of human beings, and he says they weren't ashamed. Now, when you jump over then, I would draw a line from there, Genesis chapter 2 over to Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Now, here's the warning. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And we'll tell you something. One of the ways that you can demonstrate the value of something is by the lengths to which we will go to protect that thing. And God loves marriage. And God loves intimacy in marriage. And here's the fence he put around it. He said, now you listen to me. This is honorable. This is something that is holy. It's without shame. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Honorable means what you think. It means valuable, esteemed, dear, precious, held in reputation. Undefiled means unsoiled. And the bed is undefiled. This is, this is important when you think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So you, 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 you remember how this thing goes. She is a virgin. So in Luke chapter 1 and 34, the angel said, you're going to have a child. She said, I don't, I don't see that how this could be possible And you have this this sweet innocence about this presumably teenage girl. And and she doesn't scratch her head and say, wow, I wonder who the father is. She wouldn't have been chosen. She said, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? Why was it important that she be a virgin? Because the Messiah was, of course, it was prophesied. It was part of prophecy. But not just that. It was to demonstrate to the people that this this is no simple human. This human is also God born of a virgin, but the, the Catholic Church saw fit to do a very, very bad thing, a, a, a wrong thing, and that is to teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. I hate that. I simply hate it. Not only is it wrong, but it does something that's unseemly. So anyway, Matthew, uh, Luke 1 and 34, Mary said, how can this be? I don't know a man. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph, her husband, did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn. If we hadn't had discussions like we had today about the word no, that wouldn't make any sense. He didn't know her, but well, then what? No, it, doesn't, it means that the act of marriage had not occurred. Get this wording now. He did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Now here's Matthew 13. So they weren't together in the act of marriage until Jesus was born. But then we read after that in Matthew 13, 55, a list of names that are the brothers of Jesus, physical brothers, and mentions also his sisters. And so it's all very clear. There's no ambiguity here except among, in, in Catholicism because they feel like that to fit their doctrine, what they have to do is to, to fabricate a perpetual virgin, virginity of Mary, which is just very sad because I think it implies, it's got to imply That they couldn't let Mary be a perpetual, I mean, to be a a normal woman, a normal mother like she is, because it would imply something perhaps carnal about her. Somehow there's something shameful about her if she wasn't a perpetual virgin. She was the mother of Jesus and had to be. So this is just craziness. The fact is that the Bible teaches rather strongly that the intimacy of marriage is without shame. It is without shame. What what we teach and must teach and believe is purity before marriage. But that phraseology does not imply that after a woman marries or a man marries and they, they're married in the fullest sense that's per our discussion, that somehow they become less pure. That's not true. The intimacy of marriage is without shame. Now, here's number seven. It's a delightful source of biblical poetry. Now, uh, I'm not going to read a lot of the Song of Solomon, but it's it, it's appropriate. I don't know how you'd preach a sermon about the intimacy of marriage and not include a little of this. So, I'm just going to read three very brief excerpts from this Song of Solomon. It's poetry, biblical poetry, and it celebrates marital love. Sometimes, man, eh, growing up, preaching, I uh, I would study this song, this uh, this song, and and it's not uncommon for commentators to say this has a higher meaning than what you see. The higher meaning is that this is describing Christ and his church. I've never been able to grasp that. I just, you know, I think that'd be fine, but there, I don't think there's anything here that, that points to that. I think it's about married love. I think it's about a man and a woman who fall in love and then it talks about their, their marriage and their love for one another, their passion for each other. In poetic ways. That's what the Song of Solomon is. Anyway, here's Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 6. How fair and how pleasant you are. O love with your delights, this stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I say, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, the roof of your mouth like the best wine. That's in the Bible. Why? Why? Why is that in the Bible, that poetry? And the answer is because God is very serious about this. God didn't just think, well, there's just no way to make a human race without making it a male and female, and they've got to procreate, so mm, this is just a necessary evil. That's not how that's... That's just not it. I'm telling you that God was proud of this. God designed this. God thought of this, and he made a male and female, and for this cause, a man should put away his wife and uh, put away... uh, go Leave his parents and, and cleave to his wife, and the two be one flesh. It's a delightful source of poetry. Here, here's Song of Solomon chapter two, verse seventeen: "Until the day breath, till the death, I'm sorry, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft of the mountains." Psalm chapter, song four, and verse ten: "How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes than all spices?" Number eight. It is natural. I I, I don't even... That's not my word. Uh, That's a a biblical word. And it's in Romans chapter 1. Now, the context is... uh, There's a number of sins listed here. And and we use this passage because it is a significant discussion of the sin of homosexuality. I just want you to to see that in, in arguing the wrongness of homosexuality in this passage... The Holy Spirit refers to marriage and to the intimacy of marriage. For this reason, Paul writes, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men, listen closely, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. It is not a wrong thing today to refer to the practice of homosexuality. This is not mean. This is is not mean at all. It's simply godly. It's just what the Bible says. To refer to the practice of homosexuality as unnatural. But it's a mistake for us to refer to that as unnatural without doing what Paul did here and to say, but now between a husband and wife, between a man and woman who are duly married to one another, this is very natural. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, you have this discussion. Remember, you have this present distress going on discussed in 1 Corinthians 7. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, that is, single because of the present distress. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Ladies and gentlemen, that passion is not a product of culture. It's a product of creation. And, And these passages we've been reflecting about demonstrate that abundantly. Here's number nine. Here's the final one. It is love and commitment and living good in God's word that gives marital intimacy its value. That's something that you got to get. Now, teenagers, I don't know if you heard anything I said today. I expect you did, but I really want you to get this last point because this is so terribly important. A person may prostitute himself or herself, but such activity is of low, low value. And and in the context of this discussion today, you see, I want all of you to see. And away from, away from a godly marriage, what you do is in this activity would be debauchery, it would be it would be filthy, it would be soiled, it would be bad and ugly. A person may do those things, but that's a very low value. God saved the most valuable. Golden intimacy for people who will reverence and obey him. Husbands, love your wives. He said all that he said about this subject. Before we get to Ephesians chapter 5, you know what marriage involves. All of it, not just all the picture of marriage. And that's what the Bible has taught us. And then we get to this and he says, let me tell you something, husbands. I want you to love her like Christ loved the church. You know how much he loved the church? Well, you don't have to wonder because the verse goes on. And gave himself for it. So what is Jesus doing on the cross? The answer is he's giving himself the purchase price for the church. That's what he's doing. And he says, I want you to love your wife that much. How much is a man to love his wife? You ready for this? No getting around it. Don't you, don't you mess with this. It, it says what it says. You've got to love her enough to die for her. That's a lot of love right there. And sometimes a wife may may read some of these passages, especially 1 Corinthians 7 about this subject. And Sometimes a wife feels abused by by these passages. But the Bible always presents a barrier to abuse in marriage. A man who loves his wife this way will never, will never hurt her emotionally or physically or spiritually. He will not do it because he loves her enough to die for her the way that Jesus did the church. Now you have times in Scripture and I'm going to conclude this now, but you have these times where you have lists of, of sins, right? And you even have the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but you come to the New Testament and you have Galatians chapter 5 in the list and you have 1 Corinthians 6 and you have the list of sins. But, but God doesn't like to, to give you a list of sins without including something about sex. He say, "Wow, he's really hard." No, no, he's not. No, 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 no. What he's showing is divine wisdom. What he's saying is, "Don't hurt yourself." Let me show you. Let me show you how to have joy in life. But I tell you, this is dynamite. You don't mess with this. If you do, you're going to do it to your own injury. Don't you do it? Don't you do that? I love you too much not to tell you the truth. Don't you think it's it's really beautiful? Then in God's amazing design, awesome design for human beings, that he created this and then he connected it to procreation. Didn't have to do that, you know. They don't have to be linked, but they are linked. And that's why you can use the <laughs> word existential. This is an existential subject. It is, it is about our very existence. The purpose of intimacy in marriage is about two things. This is just my judgment, so I'm going to throw it out to you. But I would say there are two primary reasons for the intimacy of marriage. One of them is procreation, and one of them is to draw husbands and wives closer together. But if you, as you think about that, Put procreation first on your mental list. You made a mistake. Because procreation isn't the first reason that God made it. It's the second. The other one is the first. You've been very kind to listen this morning and I appreciate you being here. I hope this will be encouraging. I hope it will be instructive. I hope it will be good for our young people. I declare they sure hear the wrong stuff a lot. Don't you think they need to hear the good stuff? Don't you think so? Is there somebody here who's not a Christian? I would say to you that the Scripture gives us instruction for every facet of our lives. We need to follow the Scriptures. We need to be Christians. And if you're not, but you've been studying about it, you'd like to obey the Gospel, repent of your sins and confess Jesus. We'll baptize you into Christ, and He will wash away your sins with His blood. And if you're a Christian, but you need the prayers of the... The family of God today, I, I've left the faith. I want to come back. I want to make things right. Now would be such a good time.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.